about uh, 30 years ago, Judy and I went to a Rolling Stones concert. <clears throat> and uh, the, the warm-up act for the concert was Stevie Wonder. The warm-up was much better than the real concert. That may have been what happened here this morning. Um, well, we'll make a transition. I want to read for you uh, a verse, a couple of verses, that are very familiar to you uh, by the psalmist from probably a psalm that you've memorized. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me besides peaceful streams. He renews my strength. This will be my last chapel of the year, as it turns out, which means that this is sort of my last shot at the thing before you all disperse for the summer, and in some cases disperse for the rest of your lives. Not sure I like that, to be honest with you. Well, I like it. That's why you're here. But it's not easy letting go. This has been a special year in my life, and I will for not forget it, and I will not forget you, guaranteed. Anyway, feeling nostalgic. And that raises the question, what to talk about here as we move towards the end of the year? And the options are legion. I could tell you to study hard, hang in there, don't let down your guard. These are the critical weeks before final exams. We could also look beyond finals and graduation and think about your summer. Then you'd probably hear some version of, be good, have a great summer, but behave yourself. And of course, we all know what a profound impact that would have upon your summer activities. That's a joke. But I'm not going to do that for a couple of reasons. In the first place, whether I tell you to study hard or to be good, it will have probably no effect. We're too far into the year for anyone to really change their study habits. And besides that, once the summer has begun, begun this chapel will be history, not memorable or rememberable for that matter. More importantly, none of that is what the Lord has laid on my heart this morning. Instead, I've got a story to tell you that has sort of haunted me ever since I heard it and which I think needs to be shared with you this moment at this time. The story's not long, nor unusual, actually. This happened to a friend of a friend, so it's not about someone that I actually know. The person involved was a high school senior who was male or female. So far, we're really narrowing things down, I know. I'll call him a he just to make it easier. But the point is, this could have happened to anyone, male or female just your average high school senior. But not really, because this particular high schooler was in fact a very accomplished student, one of the best in class, and also an outstanding athlete in a couple of sports. And to make matters worse, this individual was also considered very good looking, a real stud, assuming he was a guy, a very lovely lady, assuming she was not. In other words, we're talking brains, beauty, and prowess here. Everything your average high school senior dreams about having but does not normally have. A very rare specimen indeed. Which is why the end of the story is so surprising. Because this rare specimen, an all-around high school icon, took his own life, committed suicide. Not too many days before he was, having, was to have marched through commencement and on to college, and through a very successful life. And the question, the question is why? 
Why did this person do such a thing? Why did this talented, beautiful, successful person give it all up, take his own life, and leave a devastated world and family and friends behind in the process? My wife was the one who told me this story, by the way, and she was the one that came up with the answer, which is really the thing I wanted to share with you this morning. Stan, she said, after relaying the story, I think he was looking for some rest. All of his life, he seemed to be in pursuit of perfection as an athlete, as a student, as a doer in every imaginable way, and seemed to succeed. I mean, he had everything a high school student could want, except peace, except rest. To the constant pursuit of perfection, there was no end. I think he was looking for a Sabbath. There are moments in a conversation when everything stops and you know you've just been given a revelation. They are aha moments for me when the clouds lift and the sun breaks through with a light so searing you can't ignore it. And this was one of those moments for me. In an instant, I knew Judy was right. Not about the student necessarily, but about us, all of us, in this culture in these days. What we think we need is a little more, isn't it? A little more money a little more beauty, a little more success, a little more fun. And what we really need is a little less. A little less of all of the above and a lot more rest. We need a Sabbath, in other words, and we don't have a clue how to find it. I mean, what does the Bible say about the Sabbath anyway? We don't know, do we? Especially those like me who have goals without end, projects without ceasing, And to be honest with you, all these goals are good, I think. Each one separated out is even a gift from God. Studying hard, there's nothing more important. We're learners by God's design at his command. And what about keeping our bodies well-tuned? Isn't that just another way of being a good steward? Isn't that what we ought to do, especially those who have been gifted in sports and athletics? Of course it is. Those two are gifts. Indeed, I suspect that almost all of our involvements, those for fun as well as those for service, those for friends as well as those for the poor and the needy, they're all probably good in their own right. Indeed, one could locate nearly all of them in some clear biblical injunction, like love your neighbor or honor your parents or love the Lord your God. But at the end of the day, after we have done all these good things which God calls us to, there's something missing. And it is the peace that passes understanding. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Can we? I'm reminded of a scene I observed the other day while walking down State Street on Saturday afternoon. It involved a very large man, probably in his late 20s, who was buff, buff to the hilt. I mean, this guy had muscles bulging out of his ears. He was well over six feet tall. His arms looked like Popeye's. You know about Popeye? Cartoon guy? Oh, dear. (laughs) With every passing day, I I lose one analogy after another. Anyway, this guy looked like Popeye, whether you know what Popeye looked like or not. And he was ambling down the road, cars flying by on one side, pedestrians on the other side. And in his arms, no, actually in, in one arm here, was a small child close, tucked in close beside him. And the dad was strolling, talking to someone beside him, and of course this baby or child was about five feet off the ground. But none of it mattered at all to this child, resting in the comfort 
of her father's arms. She was practically asleep, just at rest in her father's arms. And I thought, that child knows how to rest. In spite of circumstances and because of her trust, she knows how to rest. But we moderns, we do not. We don't know how to rest. And for some of us, it's because we don't have anyone in whose arms we can rest. No shepherd, no heavenly father. But even for those of us who know the Lord our God and who say, we belong to Christ and sing about resting in the everlasting arms, even we don't seem to be able to find the peace we need. Why not? Every year about this time, I start thinking of all of you not as Westmont students, but as Westmont alums. Part of that is that we're getting to the end of the year, and I know that many of you will be graduating and taking the next step. But most of it is the realization that you are only here for a season, after which you will apply what you have learned or you will not. And I think my worry this morning is that while we may have taught you how to do all kinds of things and do them well, we may not have given you the one gift that you really need. And it's not the gift of doing anything at all. It's the peace of Christ. It's the rest that we all long for. I want to read two passages of Scripture, which I know you're familiar with, but which seem to me to be routinely misunderstood. The first is from Exodus 20. It's part of the Ten Commandments. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days a week are set apart for daily duties and work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners among you. For in six days the Lord created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, and he rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. The other passage is from the Gospel of Mark, and it's familiar as well. On the Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off the heads of wheat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, they shouldn't be doing that. It's against the law to work by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. But Jesus replied, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what King David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, ate the special bread reserved for the priests alone, and then gave some to his companions. That was breaking the law too, Jesus then said to them. The Sabbath was made to benefit people and not people to benefit the Sabbath. And I, the son of man and master of even the Sabbath. Interesting passages, are they not? But what do they mean for us today? My grandparents grew up in a world that believed Moses more than Jesus, I think. At least that's the way it seemed to me. They would not have expressed it that way, certainly, but my grandfather remembers a time when there were very strict rules about what one could do and couldn't do on Sunday, which was their Sabbath. There were rules in society at large about what kinds of stores could be open, for example, virtually none. But more importantly, there were rules in his church about what one could do and could not do on Sunday. And by and large, the rule was go to church. Go to church in the morning, go to church in the evening, Stay at home during the day unless you were in church and have a nice Sunday dinner. People didn't work unless you were a pastor, in which case you worked all day, or a mom, in which case you spent most of the day making dinner and looking after the kids. 
unless you were a dad who was in charge of Sunday school in the morning and music at night. In other words, there were all kinds of rules which governed this day of rest, which did not ensure rest to any extent. But it did mean that there was one day every week when people weren't employed and some worshiped together as a family. It was full of inconsistency and legalism, but it was a day set apart. Now move the clock forward about a century and come to our day. We have, in the first place, very few rules about any particular day. We are more likely to be employed on weekdays than weekends, but people typically work seven days a week in one form or another, particularly if they're successful. Church may be on Sunday morning or Saturday or any other time people think it might be convenient. If we have a weekend, we use it to make up for work we didn't do during the week, if we're a student, or work like crazy to have fun, trying to balance off the fun we didn't have during the week. We think of all kinds of things to do in the evening and on weekends, but almost none of it looks like rest, and certainly none of it looks like the little baby in the arms of her father walking down State Street. And we Christians, we Christians, we justify this way of life by quoting Jesus. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, as the King James puts it. And we think that means we can do anything we want, anytime we want, and we forget the last words of Jesus. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Instead, we think we are lords of the Sabbath, and we have decided it doesn't matter. Somewhere between the legalism of my grandparents' era and the narcissism of our own, I think there was a moment, perhaps, perhaps, when we might have got it right, at least in my experience. I grew up in a farming community, which took the Sabbath, or Sunday, pretty seriously. Most stores were closed on Sunday, except those that sold some necessities. Most farmers didn't work, but there was no stigma if you broke the rule once in a while. And Sunday in my family was a day of gathering. We gathered together for church on Sunday morning. We gathered together at grandmother's house for chicken dinner Sunday afternoon. We gathered together in the living room after the meal and talked and debated and laughed and slept. We gathered together for a short service in the evening, after which we gathered together at some friends at somebody's house till around 9 or 10 at night. And then we came home and slept, slept well. And I have to tell you, we, that is the family, loved this whole routine. Oh, I don't mean that there weren't complaints about an activity or two now and then, but if you were to ask any of the 30 or so children or grandchildren about their recollections about Sunday growing up, they would all smile. All of them would say, it was good, very good. No one was there because they had to be, but because they wanted to be. No one thought the routine would get them closer to God, but all of them thought they were being obedient to God in the process. And no one thought that others who did it differently were sinners as a result, but no one would have given up the routine for all the tea in China. In other words, Sunday was understood as a gift from the Creator, and we were pretty grateful. Don't get me wrong, I don't think those days were perfect for our family or anyone else. Indeed, I could list a whole series of things, places where we got it wrong in that period of my family's history. But I do think we got the Sabbath right, not as a burden, but as a gift, not as something to be endured, but as something to be enjoyed, a genuine Sabbath from the activities of the week and a time of rest to enjoy the Creator. But what does that mean today? When no one lives on a farm, for one thing, and all of us are plugged into a highly kinetic society, 
How do we find rest in a world that doesn't have any idea what that means? What do we do with the Sabbath principle in a world that's governed by other principalities? Well, I don't know. That's the first thing you need to keep in mind. But I've got an idea. And to understand it, you need to know something about me as well as my prayer life. And the first thing you need to know is that while I grew up with a pretty good Sabbath, I really never learned to pray with any consistency at all. From the time I put my faith in Christ until about the age of 35, I, pray, I prayed about the way that I tithed, which was whenever it was convenient. It was convenient in church because everyone else was praying. It was convenient in a crisis because I had no place else to turn. It was convenient at a meal because we also always started our meals with prayer. And that's about the way I tithed as well. A little something in the offering plate because it was going by. A gift here and there when I saw a special need, but nothing particularly meaningful and not very satisfying. All that came to a head during the summer of 1983, which is when two fairly dramatic things happened in my life. First, one of my best friends, one of my best friends, was involved in a divorce. And something happened that was unthinkable up to that time. Two people whom I knew and loved, who seemed to love each other, and who had all the right beliefs and moral convictions, lost their marriage. And they lost it because one of them, someone who was the, the best of friends, one of my groomsmen at my wedding, someone who counseled me and walked with me through dark valleys, and shared his faith and friendship with me, that same person decided to take up with someone else, to forsake a loving wife and children in order to pursue a relationship with another woman. And of course, I talked to him about it, and I listened to him justify his actions in the most unimaginable terms, and I walked away from our conversation knowing one thing absolutely and without a doubt. If it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone, including me. The second thing that happened, and some of you have heard this story before, is that Judy, my wife, became pregnant for the third time, much to our surprise and even chagrin. Our two older children were 12 and 8 at that point, and both Judy and I were working full-time and enjoying our jobs immensely. I was deep into my third book, which was taking all of my spare time. And to be honest with you, we were over having children. All done. Been there. Done that. But God had other plans. And we suddenly found ourselves with child. And within a short amount of time, I was hit full force with a very simple fact. I'm not in control of my life. Not in control. On the one hand, given what had happened to my friend, I couldn't even assume I would do what was right even when I knew what was right. That was the lesson of my friend's affair. But even if I was able to do the right thing, the plans that I made for myself were so easily undone. We make our plans, we set our objectives, and the heavens laugh and give us a baby, which is exactly where Kirsten came from. Heaven's plans are better, as you can see. But I didn't know that at the time. And the single searing realization that came out of that experience was that if my plans were paltry and my flesh was weak, then I needed to pray big time. Because the one who prayed, I prayed to knows no weakness. Because the one I love with all my heart 
is the God of history who charts the course of nations and people and holds the world in his hands. And if that's true, and I knew it was true, then the most important thing I could do was to place my life in his hands daily. And that meant prayer. But the question was, how could I do it? I didn't have the time. I wasn't able to get everything done that was on my plate already. And now we had a baby to take care of as well. And the answer that came back full force was a bit like the Nike ad. Just do it. And for me, that meant getting up a little earlier and spending the first few minutes or so with God, first thing. Initially, that was for about 10 minutes or so. But eventually, it grew to an hour. And today, I have a hard time containing it in an hour. But the amount of time isn't important, nor is the time it's done. Rather, the important thing was deciding to do it, not when it fit in, but making other things fit in around it. To me, it's the first things principle. You decide what's most important, and then you do it first. Nothing is more important than the Lord my God, so he gets the first part of every day. Everything else bends to him. And I started tithing on that basis as well around the same time. And again, it was the first things principle. You don't give what's left over. You give the first fruits. If you give only what you can, you'll never give, guaranteed. Your appetite will always outstretch your income. Your wants and needs will always be larger than your resources. And so I decided the first thing I needed to do with my monies was to give them away before buying groceries, before paying the rent, before doing anything else, I had to take a portion, whatever seemed right, and give it away. And in that moment, you are saying exactly what you're saying when you pay, pray, first thing. These things are not my own, Lord. I don't control my life. I didn't determine my income. All I have is a gift of you, from you, and every gift I give to others is an acknowledgement of that fact. So how does this relate to the Sabbath? Well... The Sabbath is another one of those first things, I think. You don't squeeze a Sabbath into the time remaining because there is no time remaining. You set it aside, first thing, with care and deliberation, or you won't set it aside at all. And you do it because it's good for you. It's the way you were created. Does it have to be on Sunday? Of course not. Does it have to be a whole day? Well, I don't know but it's a good standard. Does it have to involve going to church? Well, it's the Lord's day. Give it to him. See what happens. But do it. For us, and we're no model here, believe me, it does involve Sunday in our family. And it means going to church in the morning, eating together with family and friends during the day, and if possible, holding Sunday night sacred, which has been a time when our family has gathered together, eaten pizza, and watched a movie forever. I mean, we've got some movies memorized. We've seen them so often. Three Amigos. What can you say about such friends? <laughs> and it's a wonderful way to end the day and to begin a week. But our way will not be your way. you got to figure this one out yourself, as you do with tithe, tithing and praying. But here's the one thing I can guarantee if you don't do these things first, you won't do them. And if you don't do them, you will find no rest. Peace and happiness will elude you at every turn.
One more story, and I've told you this one before, but I think it bears repeating now. It's about our oldest daughter, Heather, and her experience while she was in law school. As a preface, uh, you need to know that um, Heather was pretty driven where her studies were concerned from early on. Not driven in a bad sense, but certainly driven enough that she put a good deal of pressure on herself to do well in school. I remember when she was in fourth or fifth grade, Judy and I consciously decided not to say anything to her about her homework because there was already so much self-motivation that if we added a bit of our own, we thought it might be just too much. And it was a good decision. Heather worked hard, was a good student, and eventually found herself in law school at Duke pursuing the next challenge. And challenge it was. As you know, law schools can be pretty ruthless about competition. Typically, you know your rank in your class, and your rank where you stack up next to your peers determines what kind of job offer you're likely to get when you graduate. To make matters worse, everything depends on your exams at the end of the term. You study the entire semester with only one thing in mind, and that is doing well on your semester exams. Which makes for an interesting exam time, as you might imagine. The pressure during that two-week period or more is just immense. Everything weighs in the balance. And as a result, nobody lives anything like a balanced life. It's two weeks of hell, and everybody knows it. Except our daughter, who had an epiphany of sorts right in the middle of hell. To understand it, you have to know that Heather is a reader. She reads all kinds of literature all the time for the pure joy of it. And it is for her a form of rest, I think, a time when she sets everything else aside to read literature that nurtures her faith and feeds her heart and her soul. But the question was what to do with her feeding time during the weeks of preparation for the exam. And her conclusion, like everyone else's, was, well, you set it aside for the sake of the exam. Everything depends on those exams, after all. No time to rest, therefore, until they're over. And so she entered her first exam period in lockstep with everyone else, sleeping only the minimum needed, studying every hour one could, and pursuing with diligence and determination the obvious goal. But then, at some point, right in the middle of exams, she had a revelation, and it was this. I don't want a law career, she thought, if it means giving up my Sabbath, even for a few weeks. It's the tail wagging the dog. It's second things taking first place. And so with exams happening and the pressure mounting, she put down her law books, picked up her literature, and continued her time set apart right through exams, right through law school, in fact, and right into a very successful law career, which she continues to this day. And here's the thing. It didn't do her in. It made her a better student and a better lawyer and a better human being. The Sabbath was made for us, after all, not us for the Sabbath. Don't we get it? Can't we get it? First things come first for human flourishing. Prayer, giving, and rest for the soul. These are not things you tack on if you want the good life. They are the bedrocks of a life well lived. Don't forget that this summer. Don't forget that even as we go into final exams. And don't forget that for the rest of your life. The rest of your life. Let us pray.
Oh, Lord, we confess that you and you alone are our shepherd. In you we have everything we need. You let us rest in green meadows. You lead us beside peaceful streams. And you and you alone renew our strength. Help us to remember that fact. Help me to remember that fact today as well as tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good good day.